This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today we bring you a story from one of our listeners in the Twin Cities. We love telling you stories of redemption, and Paul Kotz wrote the book on it. Well, he wrote a book, Something Happened Today, a collection of the unexpected. The book was initially conceived by Kotz's desire to leave something inspiring for his daughters to read. The title is a suggestion to look for a miracle every day and is drawn from personal experience. Here's Paul. Years ago, I was working at a center for the homeless in Kansas City. Each day, we would receive donations from local markets and donors to feed 120 plus people in a place called the Family House. On a beautiful sunny Tuesday morning, a man yelled at me from across the street, Hey, you! It was my turn to wash windows at the Family Center. I would put the soapy water in the bucket, fill and rinse it out, and use a squeegee to make the windows glisten. I turned around and there was this guy waving at me from the dumpster in plain sight. He had a salt and pepper colored beard and he motioned for me to come over. I dropped my cleaning supplies and ventured across the street to see the man. Got the time, he asked. I gave him the time and he told me his name was Joe. Do you smoke? He asked. No. I thought back to my dad who had an air of confidence when he puffed away, many times driving his Thunderbird, convertible top down, and listening to his 50s and 60s music. In this case, Joe was smoking a Marlboro with deep puffs, exhaling through his nose with a purpose. His expression didn't change, but his wrinkles around the eyes exuded wear and tear, as well as his ability to smile. I have to make sure I get my stuff out of here before they throw me away too. He laughed. I realized and fully understood what he was saying. Each Tuesday morning early, the trash compactor would come and hoist the industrial steel dumpster into the air and empty the garbage and refuse from the past week. I thought about what we take for granted in our great country and how this type of life still exists. He went on to let me know a culinary tip too. He mentioned that he could not stand cauliflower. In addition to cleaning assignments at the shelter, we would venture to the downtown markets to catch some of the produce vendors throwing out strawberries, potatoes, onions, that dreaded cauliflower, and heads of lettuce with first signs of spoiling. A Christian brother named Lewis explained to us as workers that 10%, that is, the top of the crate, may be spoiled. But if cleared away, 90% of it is beautiful fruits and vegetables. We waste a lot of food around here, he told me. Well, store owners and shopkeepers were not always fond of us intercepting the crates before they were tossed in the trash. But many let us know the best times to stop by to pick up the edible food before it made its way there. 
I noticed in the dumpster he had a rickety blanket, two small kid-sized chairs, and a makeshift table. One week, I watched him do it. The restaurant bar would throw empty bottles and trash and fill the dumpster most of the way. But Joe would time it perfectly, waiting for the trash truck to pick up the refuse and then he proceeded to put his chairs and table back in for another week's worth of living. Want to play some cards? He asked me. I was kind of mesmerized by this man who seemed to just go about his business of living the streets so effortlessly. But this was a home to him, a place of comfort, protection, and possible peril if he forgot to wake up on a Tuesday. Yeah, once I had a close call, but people check on me to make sure I get out in time. He hopped back in, arranged the chairs and table, and then so did I. We played part of a game of cribbage with pegs of popcorn kernels. You want a banana? He asked me. He pulled out what seemed like a fresh fruit, unpeeled it, and we each had a half. Here is this guy who barely had a place to live, sharing what he had with me, his new card-playing buddy. It was early. Most of my colleagues were still asleep that morning, and I'm thinking to myself, why am I in a dumpster? I eventually returned to my window cleaning assignment. Some of you are thinking, I will never have lunch or coffee with me again, and make sure I wash my hands. But for me, this was a moment of grace in my life, a wake-up call, an awakening to another world that I never knew nor previously wanted to see. I thought about what I would do if this were me and how I would cope. Would I be playing cribbage, possibly drinking to avoid the pain, or maybe dead because I didn't have the stamina or the resourcefulness of Joe? I will never forget that man's generosity who offered his temporary home, part of his sustenance, a game to play, his creative adaptation of life, and his daily appreciation of the moment. And you've been listening to Paul Cotts, and what a terrific story about grace and about, well, learning to see what's unseen and to have grace, and to share experiences with people you might not ever think you'd have anything in common with or have anything to learn from. Paul is a listener in the Twin Cities on WCCO, and that's Minneapolis-St. Paul. And if you have stories like this, we'd love to hear them. And by the way, I love that he's written this book to inspire his daughters, because there's so little around to read to our kids that inspires them. And they're yearning for it, and they're desperate for it, and we all are. And that's what we try and do on Our American Stories. Paul Kotz's story, and in the end, Joe's story, too, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now we have a story of struggle. Katie Livingston is from Madison, Mississippi. She grew up in a large family, and from an early age, she learned about the devastation of cancer. The first big moment in my life that kind of changed the course of my life was in fifth grade. And so when I was in fifth grade, my mom was diagnosed with cancer for the first time. I remember it was in October, and I get home from school, and all of my aunts are there, which was just really strange because they kind of live all over the southeast. And so I'm hugging them, but I can kind of get a sense that something's weird. And then my parents tell me that we're going out to eat, which is also super weird on a school night for us to go out to eat. They tell me to get dressed and get ready, and all my siblings are coming with me too, which is also weird because at this point, I think my sisters had moved out of the house and my brother was in college. So um, in my fifth grade mind, I knew that something was kind of off. But we went to Bonefish, and I remember we were sitting there, and my mom and dad kept getting up to go outside to get a phone call. And I just thought, oh, they're probably talking to somebody about work, kind of moved on. And then my parents, when we got up to leave, they said, okay, Katie, you ride with um, Aunt Margie and Aunt Kathy, and we're going to take your um, brothers and sisters with us. And so we got home, and I just remember feeling really scared, and but I didn't know why. And so then finally they get home, and they sit me down, and I don't really remember what they said, but I can remember going into my first ever panic attack in that moment. Because to a fifth grader, you know, cancer sounds like death. So I felt like they were telling me, your mom's dying. And so I just remember the room spinning, and then all of a sudden I was in my parents' bedroom. And I don't really remember how I got there, but my siblings were with me, and my parents were in another room. And um, I just remember that night so distinctly because from then on, everything was so serious for a long time in my life and for a fifth grader. And... I don't begrudge my parents at all because you can't stop that from happening. But it was for a long time I was really angry, which was so different than how I was before that night. Um, And I was angry at my friends because nobody can really understand when you're in fifth grade. I didn't even really understand. So my dad is my was my soccer coach for so many years. And I remember one night after that happened, we got home and we were sitting in the mudroom taking my cleats and shin guards off. And I just remember my dad just breaking down crying. Um, And I still think of my dad as Superman. And so it was really strange seeing this figure just break down crying in front of me. And I think I was in sixth grade at that point. Um, And I don't think I knew how bad it was going to get yet because they kind of, they still shield me from a lot with my mom, which is understandable because I am the baby. Um, But I remember in that moment, I knew that things were going to get a lot worse. And so mom started her um, more serious rounds of chemo. And I can't really put into words how strange it is to see somebody go through the process of chemo. Um, My mom is this huge personality, just her laugh. You can hear it from across the world almost like she just fills up a space with her laugh. Um, and I remember coming home from school, she had this big leather recliner and the first time I saw her after her serious round of chemo, her hair was already gone and she was so small and just, it's like her essence was kind of shrunk by the chemo 
And that was probably the hardest part was just seeing the alteration that happened in her personality. Then she actually got in the clear around my ninth grade year, which was amazing. Um, and high school was fantastic and um, it was really good. And then sophomore year of college, she got her second round of cancer. She's actually had two different kinds of breast cancer. So I think her first kind was the hormone negative kind. And instead of it creating a tumor, it kind of hid in the lining. So it, it's a lot more sinister because they don't really see it happen until it's really progressed. Um, and at this point, we didn't really know what to think because it was a totally different cancer. It was hormone positive. And that's not very typical for you to get two different types of cancer for breast cancer. Basically, I had the same reaction that I had in fifth grade, which I think is really interesting that after all of these years, that was still how I handled the initial news. So when we got the news of my mom's cancer, we knew that something was strange because it was a new type of cancer. And so the doctors make all of us do blood tests. And so I'm 20 at the time and we're getting these blood tests done and they find this gene mutation and it's called the CDH1 mutation and it links breast cancer and um, hereditary diffused gastric cancer. And so what this gastric cancer is, is it basically once again hides in the lining of your stomach and the stomach is huge. So the fact that it hides in the lining means that they couldn't not find it until it's progressed to stage five, which is pretty typical. Um, and so my brother and I, my brother Andrew, who is 30 now, he gets a positive and I get a positive in our blood work. And so I'm 20 years old and I'm, the doctors are telling me, this means that it's not a matter of if you get cancer, but when you get cancer. And they're saying you need to basically take a semester off of college um, and get your stomach removed. Which the first time I heard that, I thought they were totally playing a horrible joke and it was all made up, um, but nobody was laughing. And so I realized that they were being honest. And so I basically said no to them. I said, I'm not gonna take a semester off of college. I'm gonna keep going. And that was really interesting too, because my brother, he decided right off the bat to get the surgery done. He at that point had two kids and a wife and he, didn't want to play around with it. He knew he wanted to be around with his family, which totally makes sense. So he decides to get the surgery done without having any biopsies. And so in an endoscopy, so with the biopsies and the endoscopies, they go in and they basically take little particles and pictures from your stomach. But what they say is you can't really trust them because the stomach is so huge and they're only doing small sections every one biopsy. I start doing biopsies. My doctors are actually at the National Institute of Health in DC. And so I'm flying back and forth from Memphis to DC um, about every six months at this point. And the first biopsy I ever get actually was horrible. <laughs> they um, told me that my stomach had a lot of um, dead ulcers in it basically. And it looked like a 70 year old stomach, <laughs> which was not really good to hear. My whole family is this way. We kind of just push through stuff rather than handling it when it comes to medical stuff. <laughs> My dad's the type of dad that when we got hurt in soccer, he was like, oh, you're fine. Even if we broke a leg, he's like, you can keep playing. Um, so part of it was the um, stress, but also 
they said that I had a lot of decay in my stomach, which actually related to the cancer. So with the first biopsy, they said, we actually need you back in sooner than six months. And so that goes into my junior year of college. Um, and I go up there Thanksgiving of junior year, so Thanksgiving of 2018. Um, I fly to DC, I do a biopsy, and then the week before finals, I get the call from my doctor and when I was walking back to my house, so I pick up and I love Dr. Davis, so I'm expecting to have kind of a jocular conversation with him. But the second I hear his voice, I know that something's up. And so I actually turn around and I walk towards Fulton Chapel and I'm sitting on the steps of Fulton Chapel when he says, Katie, you have cancer. Like, we found some cancer in your stomach. And um, I remember just pretty immediately breaking down. It was a miracle because I immediately called one of my roommates, and she was actually on the circle. And so she walked back and found me and then walked me to her car. And so we drove around Oxford, and we didn't really talk. She just kind of let me sit and, and sit and think. Then um, she told me, you know, you have to call your family. And you're listening to Katie Livingston. And my goodness, what she's had to deal with at this young age. Well, it's more than anyone should have to bear. Not once, but twice she had to hear about her mom's diagnosis. And then to learn that there was a hereditary link between her mom's breast cancer and her own cancer of the stomach. And then to discover that indeed it was cancer. Imagine at the age of 20 hearing... Katie, you have cancer. When we come back, we're going to hear more of this story. And by the way, you have your own stories of overcoming tough medical diagnoses, how a family's coped with them. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. These are some of our favorite stories because they, they teach us a lot. And, well, by sharing, we heal. When we come back... More of Katie Livingston's story right here from our home state of Mississippi. This is Our American Stories. Return to Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Katie Livingston tell her story. Her mom had had cancer when she was in the fifth grade, then got another type of cancer when Katie was in college, which they soon found out was genetic. Katie had gotten the call that her biopsy showed she also had cancer, and now she had to tell her family. And I really didn't want to because I, ever since fifth grade, took on the role in my family to make everybody happy. Um, and it's a pressure that I put on myself. It's not something that they put on me, but I want to joke. I will do pretty much anything to make them laugh and smile and make everybody feel like everything's okay. And I knew that this news was going to really wreck my mom in particular. Um, so I, I didn't want to call them, but 
Um, she drove us back to our house and I was, we had a huge back porch that was full of leaves right now. And I remember I sat down and the leaves on the back porch and Elizabeth sat with me and I called my sister and I said, Emily, um, I got the results back. I have cancer. And she, <laughs> she replied, you're kidding. Like, this isn't real. You're joking. And I kept saying, no, I'm not joking. Like, this is real. And when she finally understood that I wasn't joking, she said, I will drive down there right now. And I said, no, Emily, I need some time by myself, um, which was really hard for her because I know that she wanted to be with me in that moment. Um, so then I called my dad and um, these conversations were probably the hardest part of the entire process. Um, just giving people that news and hearing the brokenness in their voice when they answer you and knowing that you're kind of a part of the cause of that is really hard. Um, so I call my dad and my dad is really quiet. He's a very quiet man. I asked him to tell my mom because I couldn't handle it. And um, he said that he would. And then he said, I really need to see you tonight. Will you, can Brandon drive you to Memphis? And it was at that moment that I realized that I hadn't even told Brandon. And so, um, I said, yes, Brandon will drive me to Memphis. We'll be there tonight. And I was really scared to tell Brandon because my past boyfriend, which this had been over a year ago, um, had pretty much slammed the doors on me at even the possibility of cancer. And at this point, I already loved Brandon. And I was so scared that he was going to just slam those doors. Um, so he got to my house. And I remember I was still sitting in the leaves and he was like, what's going on? What are you doing down there? And I said, oh, you know, I'm just sitting. And he said, well, do you want to get up and we can go get some dinner? And I said, no, not really. And so he came and sat with me and I told him the news and he just hugged me. And um, it was at that moment that I knew that um, I had found my husband because he just looked at me and he was like, we're going to get through this. I have no doubt in my mind. And he was so positive throughout the whole experience, even though there were a lot of repercussions for him and there still are. Because I have a lot of health restrictions, but he rolls with it like a champion and he loves me through it so well. That night continued and so I drove to my sister's house. She lives in Carterville and Brandon was with me. Um, and then my parents came to Carrieville too. And so we all stayed together in Carrieville. And those three days were just really dark and really confusing. Um, the original call from Dr. Davis, I remember saying, like, what does this mean? And he said, you have to get the surgery done. Like, you need to come to D.C. immediately and miss next semester. So the reason why is with this gastric cancer, it spreads rapidly it can sit dormant for 70 years and then something happens and it is, it basically can take your life in a very short span of time. And so the fact that it was already active in my body was pretty terrifying. I actually have a distant cousin who passed away at 23 with stomach cancer. Um, and at this point, that was early 2000s. They didn't know what kind of stomach cancer it was. They didn't know it was related to breast cancer. We, they didn't really have any answers like that. Um, 
but now we're able to look back and know from blood tests that that's what it was. And that Christmas season, I really tried to live it up and enjoy everything that I could and see as many people as I could, but it was all very clouded by my knowledge that I'm going to be moving to D.C. in January um, because I decided to stay in D.C. until I was relatively healed just so then I wouldn't have to hop on a plane if I had any complication. So Brandon, my sister, me, and my parents, we drive to D.C. We get there. They check me into the hospital where I'll be for the next few weeks. I meet all the nurses. I meet all the doctors. They're actually which this is probably how a lot of surgeries are done. I just didn't know this. I probably had seven different doctors that had a key part in the surgery. So one doctor was the person who kind of made the first incision and kind of opened that area up. The next doctor was in charge of actual removing of the stomach. And there was even a doctor that was in charge of like at the very end, putting everything back together. So the surgery basically looks like, you know, I I go under, then I go into the surgery, they remove the full stomach, and then they directly connect the esophagus to the intestines. And then that's basically it. So then they kind of stitch you all up and you're done with the surgery. Um, I think I was in there for about two and a half hours. Um... And then afterwards, you you stay in the hospital for about a week. Typically, they want to try and encourage you to get out at a week, but some people have to stay longer. Kind of depends on your movement after that. Right after my surgery, they give you, I actually had an epidural for my medicine, and so they gave me this pump that hung over my shoulder, and I could press the pump if I needed more medicine. And so right after the surgery, I kept telling the doctors, I think I need a little bit more of this pain medicine. And so they gave me more and more. And then that night, I'm laying in my hospital room and Brandon's on my right side, my sister's on my left, and Brandon is holding my hand. And my hand has a lot of, both hands have a lot of IVs in them. But I tell Brandon, "Um, my hand's kind of going numb. Maybe we should not hold hands right now. I don't know why. And so he kind of lets go of my hand. And then I'm like, okay, now my left hand is going numb too. And then my feet start going numb. And then this numbness just like crawls up my body until the only thing that I can feel is my neck. And throughout this whole process, we're trying to get nurses, but I don't really know what was going on, but nurses couldn't come. And so finally they get the head doctors. I think my sister actually went directly to the head doctor. She was pretty fired up. Um, And I remember the doctor rushed in. He pretty immediately was like, we have to shut off all of her medication for the next about 12 hours um her body is rejecting it like she can't handle this we did too much and so then we get my parents in there and they shut off my medication and that night I just remember horrible pain I mean I am surprised I didn't pass out because it was just awful and so they took I didn't even have like Tylenol the first night after the surgery it was so bad and I remember my family was with me the whole night too and my dad was fanning me because from my pain I was just sweating and sweating and sweating and Dr. Diggs stayed in there all night with us too to kind of monitor my progress and you're listening to Katie Livingston telling a a remarkable story in great detail and my goodness having to tell your own parents 
especially if you're the one who's always been diffusing anything bad in the household. Not even, she couldn't tell her mom. She had to tell her dad to tell her mom. She just couldn't do it. And then, my goodness, hearing about this surgery, and then hearing about one hand going numb, the next, the body. But my goodness, Brandon, she knew he was going to be her husband because, well, he just hugged her. And as she put it, well, he was like a champion. He rolls with things like a champion. When we come back, more with Katie Livingston's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and the last part of our story with Katie Livingston. She had just received a full gastrectomy, and after a bad reaction to the pain medicine, the doctors had to take her off everything. So she braved her first night post-surgery unmedicated. We return to the story. So that was a really big night, and that set me back a little bit on recovery. And so with this pain... A lot of it was faith that got me through because I couldn't really move or speak or do anything without hurting. And so even though I had all these people surrounding me, I really had to just focus on the Lord. And there were a lot of verses that um, were running through my mind about walking through darkness. And I had never walked through darkness like that before. And through this, just like I said, just blinding pain. And um, I don't know. I think really God gave me peace that I was going to get through it because it it really wasn't a question of if, but just how. (laughs) And so a lot of it was me just being as still as possible. I don't know. I, I feel like I learned that being still is just as active as fighting back because it, it could have been easy in some of these situations to lose my mind, throw a fit, all this kind of stuff, but still I couldn't have done anything. I was powerless. So instead, I kind of, it was a moment of obedience of saying, I know that you have me, even though I don't really know when this night is going to end. But the night did end, and the next few days were really bad because, like I said, those, that night set me back a lot on my recovery. And I (laughs) was disgusting. I didn't brush my teeth, didn't shower after a long time. And slowly, kind of, my family had to get back to regular life. So my sister had to fly back. Then Brandon had to fly back to start school. And then my dad had to go back because of work. And so then it was just my mom and I. And it got to the point where Dr. Diggs, once again, um, was coming in and saying, Katie, you have to move. I know that this is scary, but you have to move. You're not going to get any better if we don't get you out of this bed. And so he kind of was the one who pushed me to get out and to move and to take those first steps, which were really painful. Um, And so another story that I remember um, about when I was in recovery in the hospital is the first time that I brushed my teeth by myself. Um, And honestly, now brushing my teeth, even to this day, 
it's a very freeing thing, which sounds so silly. Um, but when I could take my steps to the sink by myself and pick my toothbrush up and brush my teeth, I just remember I was looking at myself in the mirror and just sobbing because all of the things that I had taken for granted had been swiped away. Um, and even the first shower that I took my mom and I was 21 at this time 20 I guess yeah 20 my first shower that I had it was like I was a baby again like my mom had to give me a sponge bath basically and that was kind of humiliating just because all of my independence was kind of gone at this time um and I felt bad for my mom because my scar was horrendous and so she was also having to deal with that and so yeah, in the hospital, I started slowly getting some independence back. And then we moved into an apartment in DC and that was really fun. Well, as fun as it could be, um, but we, I was able to have visitors. So I expected the pain. I expected the physical struggle that the surgery was gonna be. But my brother and I have both said that we did not expect the emotional, mental and spiritual pain that came with it. Um, and it was really interesting hearing my brother talk about this too because I'm already a pretty emotional person. My brother is not so much. Um, but it's been so cool to bond with him over this experience. And um, I remember when I was having a really bad, about month three is when kind of depression set in, um, which part of it was chemical and part of it was nutrition. But then it was also just you feel so isolated because everybody around you is living their normal life and all of a sudden your however many years you've lived on earth has been flipped upside on its head you know um so I remember calling him when I had just one of my worst emotional breakdowns and he was able to so much understand everything that I was saying that it was able to I was able to compartmentalize and say okay this is kind of normal like I feel insane but but this is normal yeah so the emotional side of going through this experience has given me a lot of empathy, I feel like, for people, especially for my mom, who have had to live through having cancer. Um, because one, you feel like it's a burden on people that you love. And that's really hard because one of the biggest things you need is love. You need support, you need community, but you also don't wanna feel like you're burdening people. And that's just this really weird dichotomy of, I want a hug, but I don't want a sympathy hug, if that makes sense. But you can get into this mindset of creating everybody's actions as just being out of pity, but they're not. That's just something that you're doing mentally. And that was one of my biggest fears way before I ever got diagnosed with the cancer was becoming this one thing, is becoming this sickness, becoming this um, disability. And people are so much more than the struggles that they experience. Yes, like I am completely changed by that experience, but I am still a teacher. I'm still a coffee lover. I still love music. I still um, really enjoy playing games. And I think for the longest time, my depression kept me captive to this thought that nobody is going to see you outside of your cancer. Um, all of your old friends, they're only going to see you as having cancer, kind of this mentality. Um, which can be really dangerous because then when people try to contact you, you throw up these walls. You're like, oh, I'm busy. 
or I'm really tired or no, I can't do that, blah, 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 you know, give a reason. So watching my mom go through the process of having, because she really puts a lot of shame and responsibility on her own shoulders for what we've been through, which Andrew and I constantly are saying, mom, don't do that. You know, this is not from you. This is generations back, you know. Um, I actually have talked to my brother about this because he has three children now. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of hope because of the work that NIH and other hospitals are doing on this. They have just come leaps and bounds from where we were 10 years ago. You know, if I had been born 10 years ago or farther back, I probably wouldn't have known all of this genetic information and I probably would have died at 23. So, it is this weird feeling that I know that my kids will have a different walk than some kids their age, but we all, even if we don't know what other people are going through, every single one of us has pain in their life and has struggle and has, um, you know, I even think that everybody has sickness somehow in their life. The more and more that I talk to people, the more people that say, oh yeah, my blank struggles with this cancer or my blank has this disease and it's really hard for us. And so, I don't know, I have this weird piece about it now with my kids, which was not not the matter two years ago when I first went through the surgery. Brandon, the first time, kind of rewinding back, when I got the blood test back that was saying that you are positive, so this means that it's a matter of when you get cancer, not if. And from that moment, he said, this is never going to change who you are. This is only going to make your story more beautiful and And this is only going to make you be able to reach more people and love them better. And that has really been his mentality this entire time. And so we started dating. And then, like I said, I got the cancer news and I told him and he responded with open arms and encouragement. And he has always said that our relationship and our future is worth whatever sickness. Because my sickness sometimes that happens is I could be out for a few hours. And so it can really kind of derail our plans I think I forget all of the trauma that my body has been through and I get angry when my body can't do something. So when I get really tired after something that, you know, quote, normal people um, don't get tired from, I get really angry with myself. And then it goes into this whole cycle of envy and wishing I was somebody else. And, and it can happen really quick, so really quickly. So I'm trying to learn how to give myself more grace to know that my body has been through a lot and it's still healing. The biggest thing I've learned is to not take anything for granted and to live in the moment. Um, Because before all of this happened, I was constantly looking to what's next, what's next, what's next. And I've realized now that sometimes the next can be robbed from you and life really can be so short. And so the present moment has become so much more beautiful to me because you never know what is coming next. Um, and also to always be very grateful for what we do have. Because like I said, with brushing my teeth, when I wasn't able to brush my teeth, I realized how much I missed it. And when I wasn't able to have coffee for a few months, even the coffee, I missed it so much. And so now when I order coffee and when I brush my teeth, I'm really grateful. And what a voice. And thank you, Katie, for sharing that. Thanks, Faith, for bringing us this story. And wow, what lessons learned, what wisdom from someone so young, uh, from her empathetic powers that she's developed from this setback. 
to learning how to not take life for granted and to live for the moment. And my goodness, the present is more beautiful for me now. I'm grateful for what I do have. And by the way, what she does have is one heck of a husband. This will never change who you are. It will just make you more beautiful. And there are men who can say these words to their wives and men who can't. And I think we all want to be like Brandon. Thanks to Katie Livingston for sharing her story again, her battle with cancer. It hurt, it took, but it gave and brought her and her husband closer together and her family and her brother. The Livingston Family Story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. In just decades following the signing of the U.S. Constitution in 1787, trailblazers called mountain men headed west. These adventurers gave rise to new American heroes and new enemies, too. But these struggles and battles will forge the American character and will transform a colony into a country. Today's story is told to us by one of America's best Western storytellers, Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. By 1821, 24 U.S. states have been established. The population is something around 9.6 million. The country's border expands to the Missouri River. And beyond that border lies a vast western territory of brutal wilderness shrouded in myth. Conquering it requires extraordinary men. One of the greatest of these is Jedediah Smith. He was the first to come overland into California. He's the first known person to cross the Sierra Nevada. The first man to recognize the significance of the South Pass. Smith's discoveries beyond the Missouri surpassed those of even Lewis and Clark. Here's Jim Hardy, director of the Fur Trade Research Center. Without men like Jedediah Smith, and particularly his trails, we wouldn't have had an Oregon Trail. We wouldn't have had a gold rush uh, because the, the, the routes to California and Oregon wouldn't have been there yet. Smith embodies the character of America, frontier grit, rugged individualism, survival. Jedediah Strong Smith is born the fourth of 12 children on January 6, 1799, in south-central New York State, to parents who descend from the Puritan settlers of Massachusetts. Following the expanding frontier, the family moves westward in 1810 to Erie, Pennsylvania, and two years later, Jedediah, now 13 years old, goes to work as a clerk on a freighter that sails the waters of Lake Erie. The young teenager becomes familiar with not only shipping and trading, but also the adventurous life of those who live farther to the West. Then in 1814, a family friend gives Jedediah a copy of the Journals of Lewis and Clark, and he devours the book. Here's an astronaut. Buzz Aldrin. 
Lewis and Clark want to see what's on the other side. Given a mountain, we want to climb it. We hold those venturers of the past uh, in great admiration. Then, in the spring of 1822, the 23-year-old is off on his own to the edge of Western civilization in St. Louis, Missouri. The city is the center of America's fastest-growing industry, the fur trade. Here's Barton Barber, author of Jedediah Smith, No Ordinary Mountain Man. Jedediah's primary reason for going to St. Louis and then into the far west as a beaver hunter was motivated by his ambition, a word that he uses often, his ambition to make good at a time when the nation was in terrible economic condition after the panic of 1819 and closures of banks and uh, rural uh, mortgage failures. So he's driven by the urge to make good. That means he wants to make money. A skillful writer, Smith details his life in his journal. I intend to follow my strong inclination to visit this unexplored country and unfold those hidden resources of wealth and bring to light those wonders which I readily imagine a country so extensive might contain. Jedediah Smith becomes a regular reader of the Missouri Gazette and Public Advertiser, the town's leading newspaper. One day an advertisement on page three catches his eye. Wednesday morning, February 13th, 1822. To enterprising young men, the subscriber wishes to engage 100 men to ascend the river Missouri to its source, there to be employed for one, two, or three years. For particulars, inquire of Major Andrew Henry near the lead mines or the subscriber at St. Louis. Signed by one General William H. Ashley. It was almost as if his life was was lined up for that particular moment to be able to read that article. Next. Smith gets to William Ashley Name? as fast as he can. Thomas Mitchell. Next. What do you do? A trapper. Name? Jedediah Smith. Welcome, Mr. Smith. The Ashley Henry Fur Company. Yeah, yeah, thanks, men. Let's go. It is from these beaver trapping expeditions that the new mountain man emerges. But there's something about Smith's character that sets him apart from these other young adventurers. Smith is a devout Christian, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't chase women. He is long on courage and clear thinking in a tight spot. His Bible and gun are his closest companions. As Phil Anschutz writes of Smith in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Smith was hardly a stereotypical mountain man, yet few mountain men earn greater respect from their peers. Here's fur trade historian Rex Norman and Jim Hardy. Uh, there was something about his nature that seemed to exude to people confidence, uh, trustworthiness, and boldness. He had read Lewis and Clark's journals. Lewis and Clark takes this expedition all the way out to the Pacific Ocean and back over a period of little more than two and a half years. 
And you read that and, and you can get caught up in the romance. You can get caught up in the, in the wonder of, of what's out there. And I think Jed was uh, suffering from a little wanderlust. I want to be the first to view a country on which the eyes of a white man have never gazed and to follow the course of rivers that run through a new land. And when we return, more on the life of Jedediah Smith here on Our American Stories. Turn to the life of Jedediah Smith. This is Our American Stories. In that last segment, you heard about three words that described him. Confidence, trustworthiness, and boldness. And now let's pick up where we left off with the 23-year-old Jedediah Smith joining the beaver trapping expedition of 1822. The Ashley Henry Expedition ascends the Missouri River in two keel boats during the spring of 1822. For 22 weeks, the men travel nearly 1,400 miles, covering some five to 20 miles a day. When spring arrives in 1823, the 24-year-old Jedediah Smith has spent his first winter trapping beaver at the Muscle Shell River in central Montana. But the pelts come with a price. The local Indians have stolen almost all of the mountain men's horses. Oh, Jed, we can't afford to lose any more horses. Because of this, Andrew Henry looks for someone to carry a message to William Ashley, asking him to buy horses from the Arikara Indians at their village on the Missouri River. I'll go. It'd be dangerous traveling all by yourself. Here's historian Mike Moore. To me, Jedediah is the epitome of a man's man in the West. He's mentally and physically tough. He's brave. He doesn't say, I cannot do that. He just says, let's go. They soon reached the Arikara Indian village near present-day Moe Bridge, South Dakota. Ashley approaches the village cautiously with some 40 men to negotiate with Chief Grey Eyes, Tobacco. who met Lewis and Clark in 1806 yeah. and earned a reputation as an iron-willed negotiator. We need horses, but many blankets, many other things to trade for. Smith is left in command of the shore party, trade. positioned on the sandbar. Trade. <laughs> Ashley manages to conclude a deal, trading kettles, blankets, knives, and supplies of all kinds for horses. All seems fine. The Rickard deliver the horses to the sandbar, but before Ashley's men can swim them to the opposite bank of the Missouri, a violent storm sweeps down upon them. The shore party now has to remain with the horses on the sandbar overnight. This gives the Rickra plenty of time to think about the situation. There are six or seven hundred Rickra warriors 
and a mere 40 Ashley men down below on the sandbar. Why not annihilate them and capture the keelboats with all the cargo and weapons aboard? At the break of day, on June 2nd, 1823, Smith and the others on the sandbar hear the crack of rifles and lead balls begin ripping into their position. Horses start toppling over and men dive behind them for cover. Within minutes, most of the horses and several of the men are dead. The Arikaris unleashed a fusillade of hundreds of flintlock guns. Arikara archers were also launching clouds of arrows as best they could. With this massed firepower, these guys on the exposed sandbar were in deep, deep trouble. By the twos and threes, men dive into the river and are swept downstream. Smith makes it into the river unscathed and later is hauled aboard a keelboat. Well, as Jed's leaving, he's looking at a beach that's strewn with the bodies of, of a dozen or so of his comrades um, and all these dead horses they had just traded for, and there's nothing that he can do. But my thoughts I kept to myself, knowing that a few words from me would discourage my men. All together, 13 men are killed at the battle site, and two others later die of their wounds. Jed, you speak the word. The Arikara evidently suffer few casualties. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The battle is one of the deadliest in the history of the Western fur trade. Amen. Shall be avenged. Survivors of the attack head downstream and reach Colonel Henry Leavenworth at Fort Atkinson, about 15 miles north of present-day Omaha, Nebraska. Leavenworth organizes what one fur trader called the Missouri Legion, some 350 soldiers, another 75 or 80 mountain men and trappers, and then Sioux warriors who saw a great opportunity here to have Uncle Sam help destroy their inveterate enemies, the Arikara. On August 9th, 1823, six weeks after the Arikara battle, the mountain men are organized into two companies, and Jedediah Smith is made captain of one of the companies. When the force reaches the Arikara villages, the Lakota Sioux waste no time and immediately begin pouring fire into the Arikaras without any plan of attack. Here's historian of the American Indian, Jimmy Chastine. They didn't wait on Leavenworth and his troops. They came to fight, and they fought. They went right up to the defenses of the Arikara, and they got right into the thick of the action. Jedediah Smith and Colonel Leavenworth's forces have no choice but to join in. Fifty Arikara are dead, and Sioux managed to kill Chief Grey Eyes. The Missouri Legion suffers no losses. The Arikara signal they want to parlay. Erikra subsequently agreed to all of Colonel Leavenworth's demands. And Leavenworth calls off further attack. The Lakota Sioux are outraged. The Lakota people thought it was stupid and disgusting that the whites didn't carry through this fight against the Erikras. That boosted the Lakota's contempt for white soldiers and their power. 
Jedediah Smith and the other mountain men are also outraged, knowing it is simply an Arikara ploy to gain time. The mountain men are right. That night, the Arikara slip out of their village and disappear. Smith heads west and spends the next three years leading trapping parties through the Rocky Mountains. It's the beginning of expeditions that will earn him five historic firsts. The first of these is pioneering a trail through South Pass. Together with some Crow Indians, friend James Kleiman and Tom Fitzpatrick, Smith establishes a trail through a 20 mile wide valley, the one opening through the Rockies. It is the door to Oregon and California. The route will be taken by pioneers on the Oregon Trail, the Stagecoach, the Pony Express, and the Union Pacific Railroad. That fall, Jed and his crew blazed through grizzly country in present-day South Dakota. The grizzly bear is the most deadly frontier beast, up to 10 feet tall and 1,000 pounds, with claws six inches long. Grizzlies don't fear anything on Earth, including man. The grizzly was the largest, most powerful animal in North America at the time. It had nothing above it in the food chain. It looked at everything as a potential source of food. It stood up, it towered over you. You could pump bullets into the thing and it would still come at you. It was literally a monster. Suddenly they hear this thrashing in the underbrush nearby. Grizzly! Sure enough, a grizzly bear bursts out of the thickets. Men, get those horses back! Smashes into the line of march. And Jed is in the front, and he runs up into this clearing. And I think that Jed running drew that bear to him. The bear attacks. The bear immediately grabbed him in a vicious and deadly bear hug and seized Jedediah's head in his jaws. And as he pulls his head away, pulls his jaws off, he just rips the scalp. And when we come back, we continue with the story of Jedediah Smith. And by the way, so many of our stories about the American West can be heard at OurAmericanNetwork.org. So many of them we picked out of Phil Anschutz's two terrific books, Out Where the West Begins, Volume 1 and 2. Those hours include The Life of Samuel Colt, Adolph Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, and John D. Rockefeller. And without this cast of characters, from businessmen to, well, mountain men, the American West wouldn't have been the American West. And when we continue, more of the story of Jedediah Smith, here on Our American Story.
got to have been different But you oftentimes will find That the story doesn't always go The way you had in mind This is Our American Stories And we return to the story of Jedediah Smith We want to find out what happens to him After he's been viciously attacked by a grizzly bear There lay Jedediah in a bloody heap. His men are panic-stricken. There's no surgeons there. They don't know what the heck to do, and nobody wants to lay their hands on this guy's mangled face. You gonna sit around and watch me bleed to death? Captain, what's best to do? Give me a blanket. Somebody get some water. And the only one who's not panicking is Jedediah Smith. And he's saying, all right, guys, you need to work on me. Jedediah's friend, James Kleiman, describes the incredible ordeal in his journal. Get some water. Captain said, send one or two men for water. And if you have a needle and thread, get it out and sew up my wounds around my head. Climbing, you got a needle and thread, you got to get it out now. I got no thread. I got some fine sinew. It'll have to do. You're going to have to work on me right here. I got a pair of scissors and cut off his hair and then began my first job of dressing wounds. Upon examination, the bear had taken nearly all his head in its capacious mouth and torn his face from his left eye to his right ear and laid the skull bear near the crown of his head. So what up tight, you so what up tight, Carmen. I don't need to bleed to death right here. (laughs) One of his ears was torn from his head out to the outer rim. After stitching all the other wounds in the best way I was capable, the ear was last. Then I put in my needle, stitching it through and through, and over and over, laying the parts together as nice as I could. I got it. Miraculously, the stitching job is successful, although Smith is left with a frightful scar. He grows his hair long and styles it with a distinct comb over to hide the vivid red scar, missing eyebrow and displaced ear. It becomes his signature look. Just 10 days after the attack, Jed Smith is back on his horse and heads west to high beaver country, 600 miles away. Smith's trapping skills earn him the record for beaver pelts taken in one season. He arrives at the annual rendezvous with 668 pelts, which sell for $6 apiece, earning him some $4,000. That's more than $400,000 in today's money. Smith is so successful as a mountain man that in 1826, at 27 years of age, and five years of experience already as a trapper, He organizes his own fur trading company and brings in David Jackson and William Sublette as partners. For the next five years, Smith's company dominates the American fur trade. The 1826 Mountain Man Rendezvous is held at the Great Salt Lake in Utah. When it concludes, Smith assembles a party of 20 men having talked them in to an audacious plan to blaze a trail to the Mexican province of California. Now, 
The map behind the Great Salt Lake is a blank. The Indians are unable to help. They can't answer Smith's questions about this unmapped region. All anyone knows is somewhere, maybe a thousand miles to the west, is this place called California. Smith and party leave the Great Salt Lake in August 1826, and he becomes the first to travel the length and breadth of the Great Basin. Jedediah's greatest accomplishment was probably getting across the Great Basin virtually on foot. And they basically walked across the deserts of Nevada. When he got ready to go to California, there were guys ready to follow him uh, into lands that nobody had been to before. They didn't know what they would find, but they were willing to follow Jedediah Smith. They travel southwest, and by November, after a little more than three months on the trail, Smith and his party reach Mission San Gabriel, some 10 miles east of the small Pueblo of Los Angeles. Today, a city of four and a half million people, Los Angeles then had but 1,500 residents. Jet Smith and his men are the first Americans to cross overland to California. Most of the route of Smith's expedition is followed today by Interstate 15. Smith and his men spend the winter at a cap on the Stanislaus River in the San Joaquin Valley. When spring arrives, Smith attempts another first. He and two of his trappers head for the 1827 Mount Man Rendezvous at Bear Lake on the border of Utah and Idaho, but to do so, they have to cross the Sierra Nevada mountains. Despite encountering snowfields up to eight feet deep, the men struggle across the mountains in eight days. Theirs is the first recorded crossing of the rugged mountain range. And ironically for Americans, the direction of travel in this first recorded crossing of the Sierra Nevada is from west to east. When Smith and the two others arrive at the rendezvous early in July 1827, cheers erupt and a small cannon is fired in salute. The mountain man had given up Smith and his party for dead. No one believed that he could still be alive. No one could believe that he did what he did. The, the thing that stands out to me when I think about Jed Smith and his accomplishments is, is the really remarkable amount of terrain that he covered, the extraordinary uh, trips that he made through territory which was uncharted, unmapped, unknown, with such ease that he traveled across the landscape. After spending a week at the rendezvous, the 28-year-old Smith heads for California again. This time he has a party of 19 mountain men with him. Traveling by the route of the previous year, Smith arrives at the Mojave Indian Settlement on the Colorado River in August of 1827. Smith has met the tribe before and traded with them and doesn't expect any trouble. His medicine was considered strong amongst a lot of the native nations that had dealt with him. They understood that there were special things about him that put him over and above other men. And, and they respected that. They brought him pumpkins and squash. 
He got good information. He got guides that took him across the desert, showed him water holes, got him all the way over to the Mission San Gabriel. But something was different on the second trip. Men set up camp for the night and prepare for departure in the morning. At daybreak, Smith and the mountain men must first cross the Colorado River. Smith leaves 10 of his men on the eastern shore while he and eight others transport themselves and part of their supplies on small rafts across the Colorado. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens to Jedediah Smith, also to those men left behind. This is Our American Stories. More after these commercial messages. our American story and now the final installment of Jedediah Smith's journey across the west and back. Let's pick up where we last left off. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. They look back on the bank and all of a sudden these these eight or ten guys that are with the party that are still there are just surrounded by Mojaves. This incredible shout goes up. They're looking back at their party and they're just being annihilated. They're being clubbed and beaten and spears, knives, tomahawks right before their eyes. They're being killed. Here's Smith looking through the willows, seeing his men being slaughtered. Total surprise, total shock. Uh, You can only imagine what might have been going through his head at that particular time. I thought it most prudent to go to the bank of the river and select the spot on which we might sell our lives at the dearest rate. They fall back into this little grove of trees. They begin to ford up. They use their knives to chop down uh, some smaller uh, branches and make them like spears. They tie their knives under the end of the spears and they pile up some logs to, to make sort of a fort there. Some of the men asked if I thought we would be able to defend ourselves. I told them I thought we would, but that was not my opinion. Thus poorly prepared, we waited the approach of our unmerciful enemies. On one side, the river prevented them from approaching us, but in every other direction, the Indians were closing in upon us. 
my two best shots. I need you to take your aim and fire, but do not fire until you know you're going to make a kill. As the Mojaves approach, Jed has his two best marksmen shoot and kill two of the Mojaves. That was just enough to make the Mojaves think twice about attacking. All right, hold your fire. We were released from the apprehension of immediate death. At nightfall, Smith and the survivors, many of them wounded, slip westward into the desert. He then blazes a trail through the mountains and forests of Northern California to the Pacific coast, and then up the coast into Oregon. Smith's trailblazing takes him through the coast redwoods, and the mountain men gaze upon the tallest trees on Earth, some of them nearly 400 feet high. The area today is Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park. Once in Oregon, now mid-July, 1828, Smith leads his men up the coast to the Umpqua River, and then up the river a short distance to a large village of Kilowatset Indians, part of the Umpqua tribe. The Kilowatset seem friendly and gladly trade with the mountain men. Good trade. While his men trade with the Indians, the Kilowatset guide helps Smith scout the area ahead for the best route to Fort Vancouver. Upon returning to the village, though, Smith senses something's wrong. He stealthily creeps closer and sees the kilowatt set have killed, scalped, and mutilated his men. The Kilowatsets used axes, knives, and whatever came to hand to murder these Americans as quickly as they possibly could. Well, Smith could do nothing but creep back up the trail and begin what became a three-week, 200-mile journey north to Fort Vancouver, the great Hudson Bay Company post, located on the north bank of the Columbia River in today's state of Washington. He's the first individual known to have gone from California to the Columbia River. So he explored the west coast of the United States. Smith remains in the Oregon country, trading and trapping until March 1829. The seven years of incomprehensibly hard living has taken a toll on both his physical and spiritual being. Here's Jedediah Smith scholar James Hall. He does write a letter home, the famous letter on Christmas Eve 1829, and he really pours his heart out, and he really lets it all go about how much he misses his spiritual life and how much he wants people to pray for him out here. And here's a chance for him to, to let loose and get personal, knowing that this letter is going to be read by his family. In August 1827, ten men who were in company with me lost their lives by the Indians on the Colorado River. In July 1828, fifteen men with me lost their lives by the Umpqua Indians. Many others have lost their lives in different parts of the country. We have many dangers to face and many difficulties to encounter. With respect to my spiritual welfare, I durst hardly speak. 
I find myself one of the most ungrateful, unthankful creatures imaginable. I have need of your prayers. During his stay, Smith gains an intimate knowledge of the Oregon country and notes there are almost no British settled there. Earlier, Smith saw that Mexican control of California is tenuous and the population of Mexicans is no more than seven or 8,000. Moreover, almost none of them have settled north of San Francisco Bay or in the interior valleys. Both the Oregon country and California are ripe for the taking. Smith feels it's his duty as an American to make his observations known to officials in Washington, in particular, Secretary of War John Eaton. Smith sends a long, detailed letter to Secretary Eaton that reveals not only Smith's writing skills and command of the language, but also his comprehensive understanding of geopolitical strategy. Smith also sends precise descriptions of his trailblazing and copies of his maps. In effect, Smith becomes an explorer and strategist for the U.S. government. Yet Smith is a buckskin-clad mountain man, and he continues to lead trapping parties until August 1830, when he retires to St. Louis. Smith has made and saved in enough money to live comfortably as a gentleman. At just 31 years of age, his most experienced man in the West. Time to call it quits. He made a vast amount of money uh, in a very short period of time. And by the time he was 31 years old, uh, he had probably the equivalent of a half million dollars in today's money, uh, which was a fantastic amount uh, for then. And it's pretty, it's no chump change for today. However, Smith is intrigued by the large profits St. Louis traders are making on the Santa Fe Trail. Early in 1831, Smith leads a trade caravan he has organized from St. Louis en route to Santa Fe. By late May, the caravan has moved into the dreaded Cimarron Desert. For three days, the traders push on and no water. There's no water here. I'm gonna just go look for some. Mr. You guys stay here with the men. I'll be back. Smith scouts far out of the wagons. Several miles out, he comes upon a water hole. Too late, he realizes that lying in wait at the water hole is a hunting party of some 20 Comanche, including a chief. They're waiting for buffalo, but Smith will do just fine. Smith knows that a bold approach is now his only hope, and he rides directly up to the Comanche, tries to communicate with them in the sign language of the plains, but they ignore his peaceful gestures and begin to circle to his rear. Suddenly, Smith's nervous horse wheels about exposing Smith's back to the Comanche. Instantly, Comanche fire and a musket ball rips into Smith. He gasps at the impact, but is able to turn his horse about 
and lets his rifle roar. Smith's single shot drills the Comanche chief in the chest, and he drops to the ground dead. Smith kills two more Comanche with his pistols before other Comanches close in. They thrust their long lances and repeatedly stab Smith. At just 32 years of age, Jedediah Smith's legendary luck finally runs out. The Comanche regard Smith as such a great warrior. They do not mutilate and dismember his body, but give him the same funeral rites they give their chief. Jed Smith has passed from life into history at a waterhole in the Cimarron Desert. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. And again, thanks to Roger McGrath. He's our resident story on the American West, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And he taught at Pepperdine and UCLA and so many other Southern California universities, a legend as a teacher and storyteller. And so many of our stories are plucked from Out Where the West Begins by Phil Anschutz, Volumes 1 and 2, Adolph Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and Kit Carson, just some of our favorites, and the life of Samuel Colt is a stemwinder. The Jedediah Smith story, here on Our American Stories.